across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. Hello from wherever you are watching us. Uh, my name is Cam Hall. I'm the host of the Alternative View here on Raw 12:51 a.m. And today, um, I'm pleased to be joined by a member of Spy M, one of the government's um, boards advising it throughout the coronavirus pandemic. I'm pleased to be joined by um, Warwick University epidemiologist Dr. Mike Tildesley. Um, Firstly, hello, Dr. Tildesley. Very good to have you on today. Good morning. I'm pleased to be here. No, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, I guess it really just cut to the chase. Um, you sit on SPYM. Um, talk to us a little bit about, firstly, I guess, your role within SPYM, but the, so I guess sort of the overall position of SPYM within the government strategy. Okay, well, so um, SPYM, so it's the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group, which is essentially made up a group of a group of modellers from throughout the UK who um, are experts in infectious diseases. And really, it's one arm of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies that really feeds into government decision making. So um, it's um, SPYM has really been in operation. Well, actually, Prior to the pandemic, SPYM has been in existence, but has certainly ramped up in participation quite considerably in the last year. Um, SPYM are the ones that do things such as, say, calculation of the weekly R number that, of course, we see in the news every Friday. We do a lot of the forecasts, so trying to predict, say, midterm forecasts, what we might see in the future. And we've also been responsible, responsible for a number of things that you'll have seen in the media over the last 12 months, such as, say, looking at the role of circuit breakers, um, circuit breaker lockdowns, for example, looking at school reopenings, you know, something that's really, really important at the moment. Um, the Christmas question, you know, what would be the potential impact of relaxation over Christmas? Um, and of course, really importantly, return of students to universities. So, you know, these are a number of questions. Essentially, what we, what we do is we're responsive. You know, we have a number of things that we have to look at on a weekly basis. And then there are very particular asks that we look at that are dependent upon the state of the epidemic, you know, what might be really important for government. The key thing here, of course, is we're not decision makers. You know, we are putting in evidence to the government that's then considered along with evidence from a whole bunch of other experts from different disciplines. And then, of course, at some point, governments make decisions based upon all these evidence. Well, no, indeed, there's certainly the it's the old adage that advisors advise and ministers decide, and we'll come on to that um, very shortly. Obviously, the COVID pandemic started um, January 2020 in China, obviously, seems seems a long time ago now. But um, obviously, from your position a year ago, it would be about a month from this time a year ago, where we would start to have the restrictions coming into place, and we'd start to consider lockdowns within this country. Um, one of the most recent developments from the last week was um, the World Health Organization report that sort of started looking at the origins of the disease. And one of the criticisms that emerged, not just of that re report, but seemingly throughout the last few months as well, is that there was insufficient data being provided by China, by the World Health Organization, and just generally insufficient data into COVID that was hampering decision-making and potentially delaying it a year ago. From your position sat on SPYM a year ago, did you feel looking back now, that you had insufficient data. Would you agree with that point? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously, as I'm sure you can appreciate, a fairly politically sensitive question. Um, I think the um, it's always difficult because when you have outbreaks emerging, you really, really need as good data as possible. And I think there were suggestions that there was a slight delay in reporting, perhaps in the very early stages in late December, 
this kind of respiratory-like infection that seemed to be prevalent around Wuhan was not maybe reported as, as widely as it needed to be. The issue with that is, of course, you're always a little bit behind the curve then, because with, you know, particularly with the coronavirus pandemic, where you know, the um, the delay from an individual being infected to them showing symptoms is quite long. You know, on average, it can be about five to six days, but it can be up to a couple of weeks. You're always playing catch up. And when the data are insufficient, it makes it even more difficult. So that was a real problem in the very early stages. Um, and of course, you know, if we then fast forward, say, 12, uh, another month to March 2020, when we started to see restrictions coming in, it really probably affected decision making in terms of when to introduce control. Because, of course, as soon as you know there's a problem, you need to introduce control as rapidly as possible. If you don't, there's the real danger of it taking off in a really concerning way. And then any measure that you put in doesn't have as much effect as if you acted rapidly. Yeah, I mean, I seem from certainly the perspective, I think, of many people from a year ago, that it was the paper from Dr. Ferguson on March 16th that had very much been the catalyst, been the turning point for a lot of the restrictions coming in. And certainly I can remember the Friday on Friday, the 13th of March, that um, Sir Patrick Valance was doing the media rounds that morning and talking about herd immunity. Do you think, I guess a lot of this is very much now looking with hindsight, but do you think now perhaps earlier restrictions could have been a thing if there was more of this data that you're talking about? Well, I think perhaps, you know, we can it's we can look back and say, really, restrictions should probably have come in place at least a week earlier to try and get and get ahead of this. The whole herd immunity debate that was happening around then was very, very much miscommunicated in the press. Herd immunity was never a policy. Herd immunity was stated as a consequence of the disease spreading through the population. And actually, and it's quite sad, really, that actually in the first half of last year, herd immunity was sort of um, badged as a couple of dirty words that we shouldn't possibly utter. But actually, that's what we're trying to achieve now through a vaccination campaign. You know, herd immunity is ultimately what we try to strive for. Um, it was clear, however, that it was not the best way really to, to try to follow a policy where you had very, very light restrictions and try to get big waves of infection sweeping through the population because of the, the fact that the mortality rate of the disease was actually really quite high. And then that was a concern that we might get a huge number of cases and then it burned through the population quickly. But the result could have been a very, very high number of hospitalizations and deaths. So it was clear that rapid action was needed. And unfortunately, the delays that happened at the time probably set us back somewhat and probably meant that that first lockdown had to be in place quite a bit longer. We talk about um, delays um, coming from the government. Again, going back to the old adage, obviously, advisors advise and ministers decide. Um, the government have said consistently, pretty much from day one of the pandemic response, that they have been following the science at all times. Um, there have been some decisions we now, particularly um, with the circuit breaker lockdown that SAGE advised for that to take place, the government didn't, and then eventually had to enact a national lockdown a month later. Um, do you think that from your perspective, sitting on SPY-M, that the government have always been following the science? Yeah, I think it's, um, in a way, it's convenient to say they're following the science. But I think, I mean, actually, to be fair, you know, they shouldn't just follow the science because, you know, if you talk to an epidemiologist, about the best policy to minimize the risk of COVID infection, then the best policy is everybody stays in lockdown. You don't mix with anybody else until you get to herd immunity. Um, now, of course, that's not practical. What the government needs to do is they need to weigh up risk 
with the benefits of slightly reopening society. So I think this following the science mantra is a bit naive, to be perfectly honest. Um, there were, and as you, you've just said, there were elements of this where clearly the government acted too late. You know, I was part of the Warwick team that were doing a lot of work on circuit breakers, and there was a lot of suggestions through October that there was really need for a short, sharp circuit breaker. And sadly, by the time it came in, it was a little bit late. Now, of course, in November, we then had the new variant, the Kent variant that emerged, um, and the government did put a lot of blame on the Kent variant in terms of why that lockdown didn't work, but it's only really part of the story. And the problem was, had they reacted a little bit quicker, the problem wouldn't, gone, wouldn't have gone away. It's not like we would have had an early circuit breaker in October and we'd have, we'd have eradicated the virus. That clearly wasn't going to happen. But earlier responses then might have meant that we'd have been in a better position. And then we wouldn't have had this big issue happening with Christmas, potentially, where uh, there was a relaxation proposal for Christmas that was then sort of snatched away at the last minute and potentially did more long term damage in terms of adherence from the public because of this kind of inconsistent messaging. I mean, that's certainly been one criticism the government have faced over the inconsistent messaging. But certainly you mentioned there was a multitude of circumstances that informed a lot of the government's decisions. And it seems certainly last September, there was almost a clash in a sense with those who wanted obviously tougher restrictions and those potentially coming from the treasury who were arguing of the potentially the economic, the educational impact of these lockdowns. Um, a lot of people, a lot of backbench conservative, conservative MPs in particular, who have felt that these restrictions have perhaps been too severe, have been saying a lot that they feel that they want more perhaps cost benefit analysis, much more data presented to them. Do, do you do you think that there has been sufficient data so sufficient data presented to these MPs and those people who perhaps aren't as convinced as to the need for tougher restrictions? Well, actually, I think that's a really good point. And it's something that we've been working on actually is trying to determine what an optimal policy might be if you don't just think about health, but you also think about economic harm, say. Um, sort of non-COVID health. So, for example, you know, if you have severe lockdowns and it affects, say, cancer diagnoses and all these things. So we've been trying to sort of put this forward as a proposal to say, well, actually, if we consider all of these different costs, as it were, what would an optimal policy be? Now, of course, this is, you know, you don't need an epidemiologist to tell you this, but of course, what you choose as an optimal policy is very dependent upon what your objective is. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you only care about COVID health, then you have a very, very severe lockdown that you don't re relax until you've got close to herd immunity. If you want to take a bit more of an economic perspective and consider, consider the negative impacts of lockdown, then actually you don't, you don't lock down quite so severely and you relax a little bit more rapidly. But actually, it's really, really important particularly if they want us as advisors to advise regarding what the optimal policy is, that government actually define what their objective is and how they weigh up all of these different priorities when it comes to determining the level of control they want to put in. Certainly from the discussion we've been having, it seems very much you've been pressing the point that you see this as becoming an endemic virus, per se, through the vaccination that will get herd immunity through vaccination that will allow the virus to become endemic. And so in your opinion, do you see elimination then? Because we know that a zero COVID solution has been advocated by some within the opposition and has been going around some of the scientific community. Do you see that then as not an option at the moment that we're going for the endemic virus option? I mean, I, I 
I wouldn't put this as options. I would put this as what is realistic. And I think it's, you know, it's pretty clear that get it, you know, thinking about a stage where we can eliminate the virus in this country is it's just not feasible. Um, you know, people have pointed to, say, New Zealand and Australia as examples. And again, we can't compare ourselves to New Zealand. We have a much higher population density. We're much more internationally connected than New Zealand. New Zealand have done a great job at eliminating the virus and then having lockdowns to control it. But with a low population density and with you know much fewer international connections than we have, they were always going to be able to do that more rapidly and more easily than we have. So in the longer term, we do need to think about management. Given that it's extremely unlikely we're going to be able to eliminate the virus, we need to think about getting it down to levels that we can control and then potentially thinking about repeated vaccination campaigns in future years so that we can protect the vulnerable and avoid a resurgence of hospitalizations and deaths over the winter months. No, definitely. And one recent policy that seems to have been pushed by the government is the new hotel quarantine system where travellers coming from red list countries are required to um, quarantine in hotels at their own cost of, I believe, just under £2,000 for 10 days or face a £10,000 fine and a 10-year jail sentence. Um, of course, borders has been um, something that Australia and New Zealand in particular have piloted and used well throughout their response. It's something that the UK has come into quite late, but it seems certainly a year ago when the United States closed its borders to visitors from China, that they were heavily criticised by the World Health Organization for doing so. What, where do you see the change in the approach to borders coming from? And can I ask as someone who sits on um, SPYM, do you, when did you first, or when was the recommendation first made for the government to close the borders? Yeah, so, I mean, I, um, in terms of the latter question, it's very difficult for me to answer that. So um, probably these discussions happened before I was a member of SPYM in the first couple of months of last year. So um, that's not one that I can answer. In terms of the general border question, um, I mean, it's pretty clear that there is the risk of, particularly as we get to higher levels of immunity through vaccination, there is the risk of um, new variants being introduced where perhaps the vaccines don't protect at quite as high a level. So that's why there's a need for this sort of policy. You could argue, you know, if we go back to early February or even before that last year, there might have been need for stricter border controls in the, in the very first months of 2020 in order to uh, minimise the risk of introduction. Um, but because, again, because of these lags, it's really, really hard. Um, and of course, unless you close the borders to everywhere, it's extremely difficult to prevent a virus coming in. You know, we could have, say, stopped direct flights from China. But unless we did extremely good tracing of where everyone had been, um, you could have had the virus jumping multiple points from country to country and still got in. So that's the concern. At the moment, in terms of the border control, we really need to balance risk. We need to look at where we think the highest risk is of potential infections coming in, but also need to be reactive. So if we do see that there are other countries that are posing a serious risk, we need to put in quarantine policies rapidly to minimise the risk of maybe new variants spreading where the vaccines don't work quite so well. Can I ask, in terms of how you determine the risk then in these other countries, are there any sort of criteria that needs to be fulfilled for you to move a country on and off the red list? Well, I will say that's not our job. Um, that's certainly not something that we do. Um, so I can't really comment in detail on that. I think really what um, 
What you would look at, though, is, is there evidence of a virus rapidly spreading? Are we detecting, say, new variants that are not in existence in this country that we are concerned about? And of course, we've had this with South Africa. We've had this with Brazil. Um, and if there is evidence that they may pose a serious risk to the UK, then potentially they need to be considered to add added to this red list. But as I said, it's not the role of SPYM to do this. OK, if we can move on now, obviously, you were talking earlier about um, sort of the ideas, potential um, reopening of society, obviously talking about um, potentially easing the lockdown and with the vaccination now. Um, Warwick... Um, university um, researchers, including yourself, submitted a paper to SAGE on January the 14th. Um, one of the figures, um, figure five, was talking about the best we can manage scenario. And with 95% um, uptake of vaccine for both doses and 3 million um, doses a week by February, um, it assumed even with um, our coming down to 0.8, that there would still be a need and a potential resurgence in cases next winter and potential um, a potentially high amount of deaths as well and the need for tougher restrictions next winter. Um, are you more optimistic, having seen the, the success of the vaccine rollout over the last month, um, are you more optimistic that that may not be a possibility now next winter? Now, I will say with that paper, now um, you're doing better than me because I'm not quite <laughs> sure what figure five is in that paper, but um, 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 I would say with anything like that, you know, they're based on uh, predictions that we have at the time in terms of vaccine rollout, vaccine uptake, and also the protection levels of the virus, not, not just in terms of symptoms, but also in terms of the ability to block infection and transmission. So I think some of the suggestions in that paper were a little bit conservative, and in terms of the rollout were a little bit conservative. So if we can maintain the progress we've made so far, and if the current suggestions of the ability of the vaccines to block transmission remain true, which of course is somewhat dependent upon whether any of these more worrying new variants take hold, then we might be on the slightly more optimistic side of those forecasts. I think regardless of that, though, the key message is that um, any relaxation of lockdown needs to be done gradually so that we can monitor what that does to the R number and the potential for resurgence, and if necessary, react strongly so that we can prevent any resurgence and risk to the NHS of occurring over the over the months when that relaxation is taking place. I mean, there's a lot of concern over the South Africa variant at the moment. You mentioned these new variants, South Africa variant being really central to that. And we've seen um, the new surge testing taking place in various areas across the country. Um, how, how widespread from the data that you have so far do you think this is across the UK? And I guess as a further point, we've seen a lot um, of the vaccinations say that they're, that they're able to present um, prevent serious illness and death from the South Africa variant, but not um, mild illness or um, stopping transmission. We're not 100% sure on that point. So is there a chance, do you reckon, that if it prevents serious illness and death, is that enough to justify that that particular variant of the virus is it's in itself not a threat? Well, OK, so there's a few points there. So in terms of how widespread it is, I say there's still a level of uncertainty about that. And um, we are, you know, we have had evidence in the last week or two of some level of community transmission in certain areas. This is why this rapid surge testing has been taking place to trying to put in local interventions to try to manage the virus. Um, 
we will get more information about that in the next in the next few weeks as to how widespread it really is. The hope is that this surge testing can get ahead of it and really prevent it from becoming one of the dominant strains. In terms of the protection levels, um, again, this is based on relatively early data um, in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccines against blocking transmission with the South Africa variant. There are suggestions that it's not as good at blocking transmission, but it, it's not that um, not that less not that sort of less useful in terms of blocking um, severe symptoms. That presents a little bit of a problem because um, you know, we know that these viruses and uh, these vaccines are not 100% protective. So if they're not good at blocking transmission, then as we start to open up society, those that are not protected um, could still get infected and could still pass it on. And of course, those that are not vaccinated could still pass it on. So there was there is a um, serious risk to the vulnerable who are not protected by the vaccine if these vaccines don't block transmission. So that's why we need to be a little bit cautious. And in the longer term, what we may need is booster vaccines to be given out that protect against these new variants to hopefully protect the vulnerable as we move into the winter. Obviously, the government's um, vaccine programme is moving ahead at the moment. Um, but there's certainly a lot of debate as to when restrictions may be able to be safe these and when we can relax even some of the most basic restrictions, including um, things such as social distancing. Um, there's quite a lot of divisions on this. I know there are some we're talking about some of the um, backbench conservative MPs within the COVID recovery group who have suggested that once the over 50s are vaccinated, um, then we should be able to remove some of these more basic restrictions like the social distancing. Others have um, pointed out many within the government have suggested we're going to be waiting more towards summer, towards the end of autumn. Where, where do you think this is most likely to be? Well, I would say that it, I would be extremely reluctant to set an exact date on this because I think it's, it's very, very dependent upon how we go with the vaccination campaign and how successful these vaccines are. Um, one of the things to bear in mind, though, um, is that because I was just saying these vaccines are not 100% effective, let's say, for example, you know, we, we vaccinate all the vulnerable and then we remove all restrictions. You know, given that we now have the Kent variant that's spreading rapidly, we would go from a situation where the R number is round about one, a little bit below, to potentially being as high as four. Um, remember, like a year ago, before any restrictions, the R number was about three. So if we went back to no restrictions with a more transmissible variant, the R number could go as high as four. So even with a high proportion of the vulnerable vaccinated and protected, there would still be some in that group who would not be protected, which if we stayed in lockdown would be fine. You know, we would see the hospitalizations and the deaths going down dramatically. But if you all of a sudden relax all controls and have a four times more transmissible virus spreading around the population because of people mixing more, not because the virus is more transmissible, I hasten to add, that would then expose these people to severely increased risk. So that's why there is a real stress from a lot of the scientists to say, you relax controls at the rate that a vaccine can keep up with so that you aren't inadvertently exposing these non-protected people to much more transmission and much more risk of hospitalisation. Just one last question. Obviously, um, sort of focusing on universities, obviously, I think for many students, that's really a key point for them at the moment is the possibility of when we'll be able to return to, I guess, firstly, the face-to-face -face teaching and the blended learning that we had in term one, but I guess also thinking ahead to when we may be able to get back to the in-person lectures and the in-person seminars that we're all used to. Um, 
I guess when do you, firstly when do you see us being able to return to face to face teaching? Do you think it's likely before the end of the year when that's a possibility? And again, I guess following on, do you think that by the start of the next academic year we may be able to be in something slightly more normal? Well, I really hope so, because to be honest, you know, I do feel for particularly our, you know, our second years and our first years this year, who, let's be honest, have not had a normal um, undergraduate experience for their entire sort of student life so far. And I think it would be very sad if we ended up having another year where students were under severe levels of restrictions, because you could potentially then have a cohort of students who've gone through their entire student life with not having that normal experience. Um, I I hope that you know, if we follow this trajectory, then maybe by next term, we can start to have some level of students returning to campus in some kind of blended way for teaching. And then my hope is by the next academic year, we can get more back to normal, because I think it's really, really important that we do that for our own students' well-being. But we're going to have to monitor the situation, see how it goes with the vaccines in the next few months. I'm pretty hopeful, actually. We've had really good progress with the vaccines in the first two months of this year. And if that continues, and we get high levels of uptake in younger people. And I think that's really, really important here. We need to get the message out for younger people that even if you are not personally at risk of developing severe symptoms, it's really important you take the vaccine for everybody else. If we can achieve that, then hopefully when we get into the next academic year, we can start to get more back to normality for our students. Dr. Mike Tildesey, it has been a pleasure to have your time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So that was um, Dr. Mike Tildesey, a member of SPY M. Um, this um, will be available on all of Raw News' social media, including our Facebook, our Twitter and our YouTube. Um, please stay tuned for all of our content um, in the next few weeks. And again, please listen to us on Raw 12.51am for all of the new shows that are currently taking place this term. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station.